last week, we said that so many people will get into fear when they hear the word predestination. And, and this fear rises up on the inside of them because all of a sudden they began to think, well, everything is already predetermined in my life and I don't have any control over what's going to happen. And they began to really feel like they're on shaky ground. But when we look in the Word of God, we find that the word predestination is a good news word. It's good news. It's not bad news. But to understand the word predestination, to see it the way God intends us to see it, there's some things that we need to learn from God's Word. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of review. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Now, if we take the time to study the Scriptures carefully we're going to find that the word proves that man's choices, the, the choices that man makes, are what will determine God's choices for us. It, that's what's going to determine the things that happen in our life. Now, every single thing that God planned for man is good. But there is a law of sowing and reaping, and whatever it is we sow, that's what we're going to reap. Now, you can never find the word predestination in the Bible ever being used in a negative sense in regard to man. Now, in case you didn't hear the teaching last week, there were three scripture references that you need to write down in the margin there at Romans chapter 9. You need to mark those in your Bible. Because these three scriptures tell us very plainly what God's plan for man is and always has been. The first reference we looked at was Romans 8, verse 29, in the chapter just before Romans 9. And it tells us that it's God's predestined plan for us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now that's good news. Now that scripture tells us that uh, what God's plan is for us. And then the next scripture, verse 30, very clearly says, For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So predestination now is based on foreknowledge. And when you think about it, the word predestination is really a term that man uses to describe what is hard for our minds to fully comprehend. And it helps us to realize that time is just a created thing. See, God has no beginning and he has no end. Time and space only exist in the realm of this life so that man can measure lifespan. You know, it, it's the same way that we have the alphabet. The alphabet exists so that we can put our words and our thoughts uh, down, so that they can be recorded. Well, man's idea of predestination cannot apply to God because there's no time frame in the realm of God. See, predestination is a word that man uses to illustrate time. So predestination here simply means to, like, to prophesy or to foretell, or to tell ahead of time. See, do you hear what that's saying? To tell something ahead of time, to tell something ahead of our time frame, the time frame in which we're living. Now, God has always known everything from forever to forever. He foreknew all of our choices, and therefore he foreknows our destiny not because he's necessarily chosen that destiny for us, but because he knows the choices that we've made, and he knows what those choices will bring about in our life. So he simply foreknows the ones who will accept Jesus, and those are the ones then who are predestined to come into the image of his son. 
Okay, the next scripture that we looked at was 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. And that's another scripture that you need to mark down in the margin there in Romans 9. We find in that scripture that God's plan was for man to live eternally with him. Now that was good. That was good news. However, man sinned, and when he did, he fell short of God's glory. In other words, he fell short of God's plan for man. Yet even then, it was not God's will for man to die. So before time even existed, we find that God had planned a way to bring man back to himself so that he wouldn't have to be banished forever. So God loved us so much that even when we fell short of his plan, he still made another way, made another plan. So what we call God's predestination is good, very good. Okay, the third scripture we looked at was Ephesians 1 verse 4. And that again tells us the plan that God has for us. In Ephesians 1 4, it tells us that it was the plan of God that all men be holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. In other words, the plan that he had was for us to come into Christ and that through Christ we become holy and blameless before God. Then verse 5 lets us know that it was God's plan that we be adopted back to him and we become his sons and his daughters again. And on down in verse 11, then it says that it's his plan that we share in his inheritance, in the inheritance that he's laid up. I want you to think about that. God has laid up an inheritance for us and he has preordained or predestined that we share in that inheritance. That's good news. So when we hear the word predestination, we need to shout. <laughs> you know, that, that's a shouting word. Okay, if you're in Romans 9, we said that there are three things in Romans 9 that would sound controversial. There's three things that sound as though maybe man didn't have a choice. And it sounds like God chose for some to have good things happen and for others to have bad things happen. And so if we take those scriptures out of context, it can really get us into confusion. But we said last week that before one can understand Romans chapter 9, we have to understand that Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome about the nation of Israel. See, he wasn't talking about an individual. He was talking about the nation of Israel. Now, if someone tries to relegate Romans chapter 9 to an individual, they're going to be confused. Israel as a whole rejected God's Messiah and tried to approach God through keeping the law. Therefore, as a whole, the nation for a while was cut off. And they were cut off because of their unbelief. It says that several times in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, we also said that you can't quit reading Romans 9 without continuing on and reading Romans 10 and 11 because there's no way for us to fully understand Romans 9 without the explanation that we get in Romans 10 and 11. So I want us to continue on now with the next two controversial things. We looked at one last week. And I want us to answer these things with, with the Word of God. Okay, in Romans 9 verse 20... It says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with 
much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, it sounds like when you read this, if you pull it out of context, that God just decided that he was going to make some vessels for good use and honorable use and other vessels for dishonorable use and that we have no choice in the matter. And if we just read those four scriptures, it can put us into a lot of confusion. And there are people who have taken those four scriptures out of context and they've made a doctrine out of that. But we can't do that. It has to line up with the overall word of God in order for us to get the full message. It's like a letter that I received once. One paragraph in the letter gave me a definite opinion about what I thought the girl was trying to say to me. And if I had quit reading the letter right there, I would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what she was saying. But by the time I had read the whole letter, the last paragraph totally cleared up the misinterpretation. But see, it took that whole letter to get the whole truth about what was being said. So in the same way, it takes the whole counsel of the Word of God in order for us to understand God's Word correctly. Okay, now I want you to write out in the margin by verse 20, I want you to write 2 Timothy 2.21. Put that in the margin. And then I want you to put a marker here and I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 2. We're going to have to read this scripture in 2 Timothy in order to get to the full truth of what Romans 9 is saying here in verses 20 through 23. And this scripture in 2 Timothy 2 now, this is the companion scripture to Romans 9, 20 through 23. It says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Okay, again, if we stopped reading right there, we think, oh my, you know, I wonder if I'm a vessel for honor or a vessel for dishonor. But here in 2 Timothy, now Paul's writing this letter, and he's writing to Timothy, and in verse 21, he says, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Thank God for the rest of the letter. And then in verse 2, he says, Now flee from youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, now the same man who wrote Romans 9 and talked about God's making some vessels for honor and some for dishonor also wrote this 2 Timothy 2 verse 20 saying exactly the same thing that he said in verse 9. But... Thank God, here in Romans, he goes on just a little further and he explains that it's not God who does the choosing of, of who's going to be a vessel of honor or dishonor, but it's the individual himself who chooses. That's what he's saying there in verse 21 when he says, if a man cleanses himself, then he's going to be a vessel of honor. Okay, there again is the foreknowledge of God. Those whom God foreknew those whom God foreknew would cleanse themselves, those are the ones who will be vessels of honor. Anytime we decide that we're going to do it according to God's way, in other words, he says in verse 22, anytime we decide to flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, we become a vessel upon the Lord from a pure heart, then we become a vessel of honor. Okay, see the free choice here in 2 Timothy 2? We make the choice. 
the invitation from God is to all men. That's why he says many are called, but few are going to qualify themselves to be chosen. I want you to turn one book back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 3. It says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, God doesn't desire for anyone to be lost. His desire is for how many? To be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? All to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I want us to look at another scripture. Go back to Romans chapter 9. And I want us to look at another scripture that can sound controversial. In Romans 9, starting with verse 10, it says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Woo. You know, we read that scripture and, and it can sound very confusing. It can sound very contradictory to what we know from the rest of the word of God. So no wonder people read this Roman 9 at times and, and they get a little bit fearful. And they began to think, well, what if God had said that about me? What if it, God had said, so-and-so I loved, Peggy Joyce I hated? You know, and sometimes that can cause a little fear. Well, Paul must have thought that it did sound a little bit contradictory because look what he wrote next in verse 14. He said, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So he's very quickly assuring us not to read that statement and think that God is unjust or, or that God's playing favorites or that God is marking someone off. He's saying, may it never be. So what is Paul saying here? Well, God simply foreknew something about what Jacob and Esau would choose. He knew what their choices would be before they were ever born. And that's why he predestined or prophesied or foretold what was going to happen. That's why he said the older is going to serve the younger. Now, God didn't choose that. Man may make a choice that brings bad circumstances, but it's not God predestining that. It's God foretelling that. See, Esau made a choice that brought evil circumstances. God foreknew Esau's heart and he foreknew the choice that Esau was going to make. But he also foreknew Jacob's heart. And he knew that Jacob was going to make some right choices. And that's why he was able to say the older is going to serve the younger. And you say, well, what about verse 13? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, we know that God hates no man. So we need to look into what Paul was meaning here. Now the Bible tells us that God hates the unrighteousness of man, but he doesn't hate man. He loved us so much that even while we were still in sin, he loved us enough to send his son. So he doesn't hate man. I want you to put a marker here. In fact, in the margin you might write Luke 14, 26, and I want you to turn there. Jesus is speaking here and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, there's that word hate again. Now we're going to have to look at this word hate and see what it means in the Greek to be able to understand what's being said here. 
Now certainly we know that he's not telling us to hate parents because we're told to honor our parents. And honoring parents takes in loving and cherishing. So we know that he's not saying that in terms of our interpretation of the word hate. And have you ever stopped to realize how many times Jesus and Paul told husbands that they were to love their wives, even love their wives as they love their own bodies? Okay, so what on earth is Jesus saying when he's telling a man to hate his wife? You know, it sounds so contradictory, it sounds so controversial. Well, he's not going to contradict his word. That's why we need to continue to look through the word to find out what's being said. Now, if you look up this word hate, in Strong's Concordance, you find that it simply means to love less in comparison. In fact, if you have a New American Standard, if you'll look over in the cross-reference on verse 26, it says that in the cross-reference. By comparison of his love for me. Okay, to love less by comparison of his love for me. So the word hate in our English language now has animosity involved in it. But the word hate in the Greek, it doesn't have animosity. In the Greek, it's a, it's a comparison word. There's no animosity involved. Now, if we took this in the sense of what our word hate means in English, it would tear down the very family unit that Christ came to put together. Now, Jesus did come to separate those who would serve him from those who would not serve him. And there's always going to be a spiritual separation, but there's not going to be any animosity involved in it. It's a comparison word. And he's saying, I want you to love your father and your mother and your wife less in comparison to the love that you have for me. He's saying, I want you to love me most. I have to be put first. Okay, so it has nothing to do with our connotation of the word hate. Okay, now in Romans 9... God loved Esau less in comparison to the love that he had for Jacob. And there was a reason why. Now the Bible tells us that God's not a God of partiality. And there's always a reason when God's word states something. And it goes back always to the free will of man. He was not predicting evil for Esau. He was simply predicting good for Jacob because Jacob he knew was going to make right choices. Jacob was going to go with God, and God knew that. He foreknew that. And so he was prophesying what was going to happen because of that. Okay, what was it that Jacob did to put himself in a position to be loved that much by God? Now, God would have loved Esau just exactly that much, but Esau would never make the choice that put him in a position to allow God's love to come. I want you to look at Genesis 25 and I want you to see this in the word of God so there will never be any question in your mind. And this is going to help us to understand that scripture in Romans 9. But in Genesis 25, starting with verse 21, we find the story of Jacob and Esau before they were ever born. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
That's what Paul was quoting from there in Romans chapter 9. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth, red all over like his garment, and they named him Esau. And afterwards his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to the twins. Now when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Eden. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob gave Esau bread and little stew, and he ate and drank. He rose and he went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You need to circle that. Esau despised his birthright. Now there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. That birthright was more than just being the firstborn. It was more than just a physical inheritance. See, Abraham was the grandfather of these two twins, and it was with Abraham, their grandfather, that God had cut the whole Old Testament covenant. Abraham and God had brought the whole Old Testament into being together, God with Abraham. And that Old Testament covenant was for one purpose. It was to bring in the Messiah, to usher in the Messiah through through whom the redemption of man was going to come. So that birthright that Jacob wanted represented Christ himself. It represented the Messiah. That birthright was the most wonderful privilege and honor that could be bestowed upon anyone. And both Jacob and Esau knew well what that birthright involved. See, God himself had told their, their grandfather Abraham uh, about the covenant. He knew all about the covenant and they had been taught from babies on up about the rights and the privileges of the birthright. The Jewish people were taught those things. They knew that from the time they were little. Jacob knew and he wanted that birthright with every fiber of his being. Now Esau wasn't deceived. He, he knew the promises. He knew everything about it that Jacob knew. And he had the same knowledge about all the promises. He had the same knowledge about what this birthright involved. And it didn't mean any more to him than a bowl of stew. See, that bowl of stew represents the desires of the flesh, the, the lusts of the flesh. He wanted his fleshly desires taken care of. And he wanted them taken care of right then. And that's why in verse 30, he told him, I, I want to swallow that red stuff. He said, I'm famished. And Jacob saw his opportunity. Now, at this point, Jacob is a manipulator, and he manipulates to get it. But the point is, Esau didn't care about that birthright. He despised the birthright. And so he ate and drank, and he temporarily satisfied those fleshly desires. See, he wasn't going to die. He was just hungry, and he wanted immediate gratification, and he despised the birthright. Now, Esau didn't have a heart after God. He didn't have anything in him that, that wanted to seek after God. Now, despising the birthright represents the despising of the things of God because he knew what all of that meant. He had known about it from the time that he was little. And we find that he went out 
And he goes from there into a life of total sin. Never did he repent. Never did he say, oh God, I'm sorry. That, that birthright means so much. Never. Look in Genesis 26, verse 34. We find that when Esau was 40 years old that he married Judith and he, he married another woman and they were daughters of a Hittite. Now the, the Hittites served pagan gods. He went on into to marry women that God had forbidden to marry. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. See, it just became a, a way of life to satisfy those fleshly desires. Whatever it was that he wanted in the physical, well, you know, he went after that. Now, God foreknew before Esau was even born that Esau was going to despise the things of God. And he foreknew that Jacob was going to desire God with all of his heart. God didn't choose that destiny. He, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to do something good for Jacob and I'm going to do something bad for Esau and cause them to make wrong choices. They had a free will and they made choices on their own, but God foreknew the choices that they were going to make. And those were choices made by their free will. And because God foreknew their choices, he predestined good for Jacob. Now, it was not God's predestination that caused the good to come. It was Jacob's choices. And when God foreknew, then he predestined. And it was Esau's wrong choices that caused God to foreknow the outcome of his life. Now, when we see and understand the background in the Old Testament, then we have a clear understanding of Romans 9 verse 13 when it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less in comparison to my love for Jacob. Because see, Esau was not God's child. He was a pagan. He was an unbeliever. He was outside uh, of God's family. He wasn't even a part of, of God's family because he chose to go away from God into pagan worship. Now, God's predestination is always based on foreknowledge. Predestination amounts to simply prophesying ahead of time because of foreknowledge. And his predestination is always for good if man will just choose it. Okay, I want you to go back to Romans 9. And I want to show you the most convincing evidence of all in favor of man's free will. I want you to keep in mind, in order to understand Romans 9, Number one, it took understanding the word hate out of the Greek, that it's a comparison word, it's not animosity. Number two, it took understanding the background choices of Jacob and Esau. Number three, it took studying chapters 10 and 11 with chapter 9 to see that it was talking about the Jewish nation as a whole rejecting Jesus. And then number four, it took reading 2 Timothy in context to realize that we make the choice of whether we're a vessel for honor or dishonor. But even after we've proved all these things, the most convincing evidence of all is that right here in the heart of the only passage of Scripture where Calvinists get their teaching on predestination, where they try to teach that man really doesn't have a choice, right here in the heart of the scriptures that they use are the two strongest scriptures in the whole Bible that prove the free will of man. And I think that's a paradox, but I don't think it's any accident. If you look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9, probably memorize this and you've probably quoted it many times, but it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay, the scripture used most often to lead someone to accept Christ by their own free will is right here in the heart of all these controversial passages that they try to use to prove just the opposite. Here God is showing the free will of man. Now this is the clearest scripture in the Bible on how to get saved, telling us exactly what to do. In chapter 10, verse 9, you need to circle the word if. Because there is the free will of man. If you choose to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. It doesn't say if you're one of the chosen ones and you've been predestined to be a child of God. It doesn't say that. It says if you personally, by an act of your will, if you choose it, if you choose to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Okay, and then we find verse 14 is the greatest appeal for evangelism in the entire Bible. Look at verse 14. How then shall they call upon them in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him, in Jesus, whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, that's totally putting down man's idea of predestination. He's saying... How are they going to choose without someone coming and giving them the opportunity, telling them the truth? Okay, this scripture then refutes man's idea about predestination more than probably any other in the sense that if you don't get out there and spread the gospel, then nothing's going to happen. He's saying, how are they going to be able to hear if they don't have a preacher come? If their destiny were already set, then they wouldn't need a preacher to come and explain the gospel. So our obedience to witness does, in fact, change history. Okay, right here where so many people take Romans 9 to say that God does the choosing, in reality, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible for proving man's free will, for proving that man does his own choosing. So God's interpretation, God's meaning of the word predestination and the individual choice of man now, we find that they run hand in hand and they don't contradict. There's no contradiction whatsoever. Now, in closing, I believe that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is the scripture that best summarizes what God's predestination consists of because it just sums up God's predestination so beautifully. So in Romans 8, verse 28, it says, And we can know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. See, every choice that we're ever going to make is going to determine the direction of our life to some degree, good or bad. But look at the kind of God we serve. When we allow him to, in verse 26, his Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness, for we don't even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself will intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. And then he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And as he intercedes according to the will of God, then we know that God causes all these things to work together for good when we love him, when we're called according to his purposes. So he'll take those circumstances, bad or good, and he'll work them or he'll weave those circumstances together to bring about good in our life. And then the very next verse tells us that those whom he foreknew, 
He predestined then to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we find that the sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, they're always used in, in context with something good coming our way if we just choose it. But it still comes back to our choice. It still comes back to the free will of man. Father, thank you that your word is so good. Everything in your word is, is for our benefit, for our survival, to make life good for us, to bring life and life abundant. And Father, I thank you that no matter how many times we might get confused if we try to pull something out of context, Father, if we will come to you and seek your face, you will give us answers. And you will explain your word and, and bring clarity to it. Father, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you that you foreknew us and, and you did prophesy, predestined good things for our life. And Father, we choose to line ourselves up with your word so that we can be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.